0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who, along with Daryl Morey, co-founded
1: and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Good evening, and hope you're enjoying the 2020 Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Maggie. I'm a first year MBA at MIT Sloan, and it is my pleasure to introduce the next panel, no Industry is Safe, the Opioid Epidemic in Sports and Society. The panelists today are Ryan Leaf, analyst at ESPN and former NFL player, Seth Moulton, congressman from Massachusetts, and Corbin Petro, co-founder and CEO of Eleanor Health. This panel will be moderated by Stephanie Whittleswax, co-founder and chief content officer at Lemonade Media. This panel will be 45 minutes long with 10 minutes for questions at the end. If you have any questions, please tweet them using the hashtag #TreatAddiction. And with that, I'll turn it over to Stephanie.
2: So in addition to being uh, the chief creative officer of Lemonada Media, I host a show called Last Day. Last Day is a podcast that quite simply is about the things that are killing us. And we start season one with the opioids crisis. So since I know we're in a room full of people who love numbers, let's start there. Since 1999, we have lost 400,000 people to opioid overdoses in America. Those numbers have been steadily rising, and in 2017, we lost 72,000 people in one year to drug overdoses. For sports fans in the room, that is the average size of an NFL stadium. So in one year, an NFL stadium's worth of people completely wiped out by drugs. 50,000 of those were opioid-related overdose. So these numbers, when you hear them, they are staggering, and I find them to be hard to comprehend. But behind each of those tally marks is a human being with lives and loved ones and stories. One of those is my brother, Harris Whittles. He was a beloved comedian, TV writer, producer. He worked for Parks and Recreation. He was Harris the animal control guy, if, if you've ever seen the show. But in addition to being super talented and funny and wonderful, he had an OxyContin addiction. And when it started costing him $4,000 a month, he switched over to heroin. And in 2015, he died of an overdose. He was 30 years old. I tell that story a lot, particularly the end of his story, sadly, because I think that sharing these stories and talking about it openly like we're doing right now, face to face, is the way that we're going to change things, to get rid of the shame, and to start talking about it in a way that is productive. So without further ado, I want to turn now to you to hear your stories. So for those who may not be familiar, can you briefly spend one to two minutes describing your background and how addiction has impacted you? Corbin, you want to start?
1: Sure. Uh, Corbin Pichot, co-founder and CEO of Eleanor Health. Eleanor Health is uh, an organization that's rethinking how we treat addiction in this country. Um, my background has been in healthcare. Um, I came into healthcare as a daughter of a family that prioritized public service and really see healthcare as a focus on on service. Like everyone in the room, have been impacted by addiction in my personal life. But really, my my foray into addiction through Eleanor Health has been to really focus on the data. So we're all here because we care about data and addiction and substance use disorder in this country hasn't been treated with an evidence-based approach uh, like we have in in the rest of the country and the rest of the part of healthcare. So really, um, you know, I'm here to sort of bring in the data component and the healthcare component as well as to hear the personal stories that really bring alive um, uh, why the opioid crisis is is impacting all of us. One of the things I heard this morning was um, that it's, it's amazing how athletes in sport have been using their, their position to really elevate the things that they care about. And uh, you know both Ryan and Seth, I think, are doing that here, and so excited to have this conversation. Awesome, Seth?
3: Sure, so uh, thank you very much for having me here. It's great to be here with a distinguished panel. And you know, for me, I'm, I'm a congressman. I'm a congressman from Massachusetts. I represent the, uh, the North Shore of Massachusetts. But the reason I got into politics is because I'm a veteran. I wasn't even interested in politics before. I didn't study it in school or anything like that. I don't come from a political family. But I felt like I saw the consequences of failed leadership in Washington when I was an infantry officer in the Marines. And when I got back, I went to business school, decided to run for office. And as a policymaker in, Wa- in Washington, I see what a disproportionate effect the opioid epidemic has on our veterans. Veterans are twice as likely to die from an opioid overdose as non-veterans. And just this past summer, I shared for the first time in my life a bit of my own story, not dealing with opioids per se, but dealing with post-traumatic stress. And I became a very rare politician to actually share a personal story about mental health. It's something I hadn't done before because, frankly, I was afraid it would end my career. And I didn't know this summer if that might, in fact, do just that but instead the response has been extraordinary. People literally across the country coming up to me and just out of the blue introducing themselves and sharing their own story of dealing with mental health because they heard someone share theirs. And so I've been working on this issue a lot more since since doing that and working on policy in Washington that will save lives right right here at home.
2: Thank you. Ryan?
3: Uh, Ryan Leaf.
0: Um, I'm an analyst at, at ESPN, and um, my story starts at 21. I, I got the opportunity to live my dream, and I was drafted second overall in the NFL draft behind a guy named Peyton Manning, <laughs> and uh, was given uh, a chance at $31 million, and didn't have a successful career. And the pressure and the stress and all of that curtailed me into a place that was familiar, and that, when I was injured, I was given uh, an opiate painkiller. And it's the only drug I've ever taken in my life. But it's the same thing as any other drug, any other way you self-medicated, took me to the very bottom of of anything you could imagine, to the point where I was in my hometown, uh, burglarizing homes to feed my habit, until I was finally arrested, and the sheriff's department locally came to save my life. I would spend three years in prison, and luckily, because of a uh, Afghan-Iraqi war veteran who helped me remove myself from the equation and make it about service, about helping others, uh, so something like this doesn't ever happen again, where we lose people at such a dramatic level. When I got out, I, I made it about that. I made it about everybody else and not me. And I think this is the epitome of that, to step in front of a room full of people, kind of rip off your scabs, And expose yourself to everybody so the hopes that no one else actually is as miserable as I once was, that they know that there is a solution, that there is hope, and the best way we can do it is is just to shine a light on it continuously and educate people because it was a lot of my choice, and there's an accountability that comes into that, and this is a perfect forum to try to change the, the hearts and minds of people when it comes to these things that people think aren't killing all of our friends and family.
2: That's actually a perfect segue, um, because I I always say on the show that addiction is an equal opportunity destroyer. It can affect anybody at any time. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what resources you have or do not have. And so I wanna turn to risk factors. So let's start with you, Corbin, from a healthcare provider perspective, can you describe the most common risk factors that can lead to addiction?
1: Sure, well, uh, you know, addiction is a chronic condition, um, and like any other chronic condition, it has the same risk of relapse and genetic risk as as that of, let's say, diabetes. Um, We haven't treated uh, addiction as a chronic condition, we treat it as an episodic 28 day, everything like that. Um, But some of the risk factors, so in our practice and what the data shows is that 80% of people who have an addiction or a substance use disorder have an underlying co-occurring psychiatric condition. Um, the three most common that we see are depression, anxiety, and trauma. And so, in many in many instances, what's happening is people are using substances to to self-medicate um, some of the other conditions that they have, and so aren't treating those underlying um, those underlying conditions. Um, but really, addiction is the the biopsychosocial. And so, the, the biological: Do you have a genetic predisposition? That's the first factor. The second: the the psychological. Um, you know, what experiences have you had in your life? Is it trauma? Is it, you know, particularly in the case of veterans, I think obviously there's a, a, a trauma that, that exists when you're in combat. And then the social, essentially a- access. And so what we what we see most is is alcohol, right? Alcoholism, it's the easiest to access. But as the rise of, of opioids and the rise of access to opioids um, permeated all, our culture, we obvious, obviously have seen uh, people addicted to that as well. So those are some of the, the underlying factors. Um, in our practice, we see, we see a lot of athletes and we see a lot of veterans. Um, as, as Seth mentions, veterans are twice as likely to, to die of overdose. They're exposed as veterans to two things, to trauma and to substances, to, to painkillers, um, because of the, uh, the physical pain that they're going through. And they continue to use opioids and other painkillers, not just for the pain, but for the emotional pain um, that they're going through. And then often that leads to an addiction.
0: I think that uh, her point around the idea that the substance was a symptom for me, right? It was as a way that I medicated. It's the only thing I knew how to that I knew worked when I was in all this physical pain. They gave me this substance to get me through it and be able to play. And then when I was in all this emotional pain because I was dealing with co-occurring mental health disorders, I have severe depression. Um, I, I am a narcissist, so I have narcissistic personality disorder. Like I'm a guy that walks in this room and thinks you know, please don't recognize me, please don't recognize me. And Then like five minutes later I go, why the hell isn't anybody recognizing me? (laughs) So I I had all these co-occurring disorders that I was just choosing to deal with it in a negative and toxic way and so it makes a lot of sense when it's the only thing you know and you're searching for not feeling anything. I felt like such a failure, I felt like the the uh, post-traumatic stress part of it. Like you go from being one of the most beloved athletes and players in the world to literally like 2 weeks later where everybody just hates you. I mean, you do want nothing to help reconstruct that in any way because you think you're right about everything, but it's a for the longest time when my therapist told me I was dealing with post traumatic stress, I said that's not meant for me. You know, that's not meant for people who are in war zones or something like that. And that's a stigmatizing thing too to be able to absorb that and understand that it's it's okay to have this
3: and it's Treatable. Yeah, it's one of the problems with vets, too. I mean, a story you hear so much from the VA is vets go in and say, "I, I need to talk to someone. I want to talk to therapists. There are not enough therapists at the VA, so they get sent home with a prescription. And in some cases, veterans realize this is really dangerous stuff. In fact, I've been a big advocate for legalizing cannabis. Why? Because a lot of vets are using cannabis so they don't get addicted to opioids but that's not legal at the VA right now, so there's a real problem there. The point is, vets, a lot of vets recognize that this is dangerous stuff, but they don't, they don't have alternatives.
2: It's an interesting thing. We prescribe opioids originally to numb physical pain. I mean, your body was put through whatever happens on a football field. I hear that it's pretty intense. I haven't experienced it myself. Um, Let's do, so we can do an
0: experiment. You stand over there and I will I will run from this side as fast as yeah. I can and just lay out. All right, let's All do right. it.
2: Let's go, let's go. Different, different panel. Um so but but you're prescribed this to numb physical pain, and then what ends up happening is that you use it to numb the emotional pain, right? And when do you you know, when do you figure out, or do you? Is there a moment where you go, you know what? This is going this way now. Is there a moment where that happens?
0: I don't think you ever truly understand when it, when it flips a switch like you're dependent or why you're using it. I understood it. I'd like to blame my failed football career on the fact that I was a, a junkie at the time, but I, I, competition was my first drug of choice. I competed at everything. And when that was finally gone and I was dealing with all the ramifications that came with, with, with all the, the high pressure, the, the failing, the, the depression, all that stuff, the only resource I had was this medication that had worked for my physical pain. Um, and I think where I grew up, I grew up in the state of Montana where there's a cowboy culture around not uh, you know, not letting people know how you're actually really feeling. And then when you're in the locker rooms in the NFL, I, I've never experienced my whole life uh, in those cultures um, another man that could walk up to me and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Can you help me? And since we're not aware of it and we don't see it, how are we to respond when we're in exactly the same place? We're a culture of seeing something and there's evidence-based proof to it for us. And when it's not there, you go to what I consider doing the wrong thing the right way. And that was going to a doctor saying I was in pain. There was physical pain, but as an athlete, I I had to have bones coming out of my body for you to take me off the football field. And now if I was stubbing my toe, I could go to the emergency room and say, hey, my gout's flaring up, doc. Give me some, some painkillers. Just because I, I didn't want to feel the way that
3: I was feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very true in the military as well. It's not a culture traditionally where you say, you know, hey, what can I do to help you feel a little better? Do you need to talk? Yeah. I think that's starting to change in the military now, but I mean, I just got out a little over 10 years ago, and that definitely wasn't the case then. I mentioned how hard it was as a public figure to decide to come out and share my story of dealing with post-traumatic stress. And you know what, it's a great story. I mean, I finally dealt with it and it's made me a better, stronger person. I think it's made me a better leader. But it was also hard for me to simply admit that I had a problem because I sort of had the same experience where I saw fellow vets who were scared to drive down the highway because they thought a bomb would, an IED would blow them up. I saw vets who were, dying by suicide because they were dealing with post-traumatic stress. And I looked at my symptoms, just having, you know, bad dreams, waking up in cold sweats, being stressed out and think, gosh, this is nothing. But why, why should I take the place of someone at the VA who's really suffering from post-traumatic stress? It took me a, wa- a long time to admit, you know what, Seth, you got a problem too and you ought to deal with it.
2: So Corbin, I wanna turn a little bit to, you know, we're talking about this from, this perspective of how do you sense when there's an issue and when somebody does sense there's an issue and they come to a medical provider. I want to talk about how that has traditionally been treated. So how they have categorized and treated addiction and how that might be starting to shift to an evidence based care model.
1: So, so interestingly, so I, I spent my career in, in healthcare and healthcare is known for being evidence based, right? Everything you do is based on evidence. You know, to get a drug passed through the FDA takes years and years, trial after trial. And you know, I, I came into the, the substance use disorder and, and addiction space and it really feels like a cottage industry. It hasn't been treated like a part of healthcare. It's typically people who um, have been through recovery and they've said, this worked for me. And so I'm going to create, you know, whatever whatever treatment model that they think is appropriate because it worked for them. It's all been anecdotally based and not evidence based. So, um, the, you know, the biggest thing that you hear, you know, Open US Weekly uh, latest celebrity goes to a 28 day rehab. Very episodic. Absolutely nothing about a 28 day rehab is based in evidence. You know, single digit success percentage success rates. So going, you know, going to a beach in Malibu for 30 days for $45,000 and meditating is not a clinically appropriate treatment model.
2: That was where my brother went <laughs> to the exact place you just and he probably
1: walked described. out and... and used
2: that day exactly. and used that day, yeah.
1: And so um, what the evidence evidence tells us is that addiction is a highly treatable chronic condition. And there's a strong evidence base that shows how you treat it. And it's, you know, it's medication. So there are different types of medication to treat different types of addiction. The evidence shows that if you take medication, your ability to stay in recovery is, uh, you know, highly more uh, successful than that if you don't. Therapy dealing with the co-occurring psychiatric conditions that you have through a therapy treatment model, and then recovery services, essentially, which is creating meaning and purpose in people's lives, which is important to sustaining one in, cover, in recovery. Um, after a year in recovery, your, your risk of relapse goes, goes down significantly, and after five years in recovery, so not 28 days, but five years in recovery, your risk of relapse becomes that of the general public. So that's, that's what the evidence shows. Um, but we haven't been treating addiction, as you know, um, in that way. And so what, what we're trying to do at Eleanor is obviously we just, we just follow the data. It's not rocket science. We just follow what, what the data tells us and what the evidence tells us in terms of how to treat addiction.
2: Um, I wanna talk a little bit about the framework of addiction as a disease. So uh, Ryan, I heard you say you were a junkie and I heard, you know, you've, you've been quoted as saying you were an addict before you even started using. And I know in healthcare, in the healthcare world, there is a movement to stop saying addict and instead to say somebody has a substance use disorder, somebody has an opioid use disorder, and to not, um, that is a stigmatizing term. But a lot of people that I've interviewed for my show who, who do have addictions call themselves addicts. So what is that, what, what, what's happening there?
0: Well, for me, it's, The audience that I speak to and the platform that I have usually are individuals who empathize with me because we've been through the the same situations. And I think that sometimes when I am on national TV talking about sports or um, on the radio, that when I'm in a room with an individual that doesn't maybe have the same kind of platform, they want to feel the same. And I feel there's a a commonality there. I feel like when you try to distance yourself from something that that exists so much in our country, that's making yourself unique or better than. And when I speak and when I do stuff like this, I try to remove myself from the equation completely and be like everybody else. That, for me, is also a badge of honor. I've done amazing things in my life. I'm the only Montana to ever be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft, right? there's more first-round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole state of Montana ever. So <laughs> <laughs> I've done amazing things to get where I was at, but I'm just like everybody else, you know? I just happen to have been a good football player at a time. And I think that, that commonality, th- those words, there's truth in it. Um, and I think for the longest time, because I thought I was going to a doctor to get these drugs and not on the street uh, getting heroin and, and shooting in it with a needle or something like that, that made me a better drug addict or I wasn't the same. I thought I was better than and unique. And that's usually what got me into that mess in the first place, because I thought I was better than everybody else. And so for me, it's important. It's a badge of honor when somebody else says, I'm seven years sober um, you know, from being a drug addict. That's, that's special to me uh, when I hear somebody tell me their story. and um, And I look at it as something else, right? I see it as a a disease, a science, right? I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug. You know, everybody uses whatever they use. Mine was sports, mine was competition. I competed at everything. And I did for as long as I could until the competition was no longer there. And I chose a a different unhealthy path, but that's essentially what addiction is. And, And I know how we act and behave. And I behaved that way my whole life. Just didn't start when I started taking opiate painkillers.
2: Yeah, it seems like part of it is that if you say addicts that we need, we need to talk about it like it's a disease so that we can get care, we can get policy legislation passed that help people. So can you speak to that part of it? I mean, what, what is it going to take for us to um, make it easier for people who are struggling? to get treatment, to access treatment?
3: Well, I think it's all about just normalizing it, to get rid of the stigma and just say that, look, this is just, everybody has mental health care issues. Do you need to deal with them? If you, if, if I were to say, you know, hey, after this panel, I've got to go get my annual physical, no one would say anything like, oh my God, Seth, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but if I said, I have to go get a, I have to go to a mental health appointment right after this panel, people would immediately be taken aback and say, geez, is everything okay? And that shouldn't be the case. Checking in on your mental health should be as routine as going to the dentist every year. So we have this uh, three-part legislative plan that I've been pushing. I sort of uh, released in conjunction with telling my own story. And it's all about just taking away the stigma. It starts with veterans and active duty service members to just make it totally routine to get an annual mental health checkup. And you know what? If you go for your annual mental health checkup and you're fine, that's cool. Just like if you go to the dentist and you don't have any cavities. The doctor might say, hey, have you thought about meditating? Have you thought about practicing some of these uh, mental practices that our elite special forces are using right now because it makes them better at their jobs, right? Proactive, preventative care. The second piece is to extend that to every high schooler in the country, to make it totally normal not just for military leaders and veterans to get mental health care but literally for everybody in America to get a regular checkup. That's going to be harder because it's going to cost a lot of money. We've already made progress on the military piece. It's going to be harder to get the high school piece. But the third component is just to establish 988 as the mental health care hotline. So that if any of you ever has an issue or you wake up in the middle of the night and your husband your, your, your brother, your sister is having an issue, you know 988 is a number to call. How many people know the National Suicide Hotline? Raise your hands. I have to put my hand down because I can't remember it. Does anyone know? I see one hand. Maybe there's two. Think about that. If you wake up in the middle of the night and your house is burning down, you shouldn't have to go find a phone book to call the fire department. That's why we have 911. Mm. Passing 988 will mean that everybody doesn't have to look up a number. You can just call. They'll connect you to the resource that you need to get to. But the whole point of this is just to make it normal. It's just part of healthcare. Just like if you've got a problem with your leg, you might have a problem up here. They're all parts of your body. You need to deal with it.
1: I think, I think to your point, though, talking, talking about destigmatizing by making it part of normalized health care, you know, same is true for athletes talking about talking about addiction, it sort of reduces the stigma to make it, to make it real, particularly because of how we have viewed uh, addiction as sort of a moral failing in this country. And so yeah. I think, you know, use, A, using, using data to show sort of, you know, how many people are impacted by addiction, but also telling personal stories to make it real from, from an athlete's perspective. I mean, you think about um, football, you know, 51% of former NFL players have said they used opioids, and 70% of those have said they abused them. So that's, that's very commonplace, right? And so the fact, that, the fact that you're sort of an anomaly talking about it is, is to me shocking. You know, that's stigma, people not talking about it.
0: Well, it's the point, right? You, you said you were fearful about telling your own story. I guess lucky for me, my story was told by the, the newspapers and by my company that I work for now um, <laughs> all the time. So when I walked out of prison, it wasn't like I could hide from it. I thought I could. But then I realized that the, the only way for me to kind of take the power back and for me to try to be of service to others was to tell that story. The stigmatization of of what this is, it's all about the spotlight. It's all about shining a light on it and making it as normal as you can. When I talk to a lot of the younger kids and, and I talk to the parents, I talk to about how I think it should be like a mandatory thing that uh, once they graduate from high school or from college, they have to go to treatment for 30 days. You know, where in, where in the world would you ever spend 30 days on yourself? You know, even if you don't have a problem.
2: Mm.
0: And your mental health screening is exactly that in that form, right? Early on, you start going to it, and it's just a, a gentle reminder because I see a therapist every week, right? I'm almost eight years sober now, but I see a therapist every week. My wife and I see a couple therapists, not because, you know, we're struggling with anything, but because I'm a football player and an athlete. We suck at communication, so I want to be better at that <laughs> with her. <laughs> These are things that are natural. As an athlete, we do everything we can in our power to make our legs, our arms, our bodies as strong as we can to take the beating that happens. But the most advanced muscle in your body is your brain. And when you are asked to go see a psychiatrist, sports psychiatrist or psychologist, everybody looks at it like, what's wrong with you? Or to his point, when you hear somebody like goes to rehab, it's usually the perception like, did you hear Lucy went to rehab? oh no, it's not like a champion thing, like Lucy went to rehab, this is awesome. And that's, that's the part that we'd like to change with the conversation.
3: Yeah, it's one of the reasons why one of the things my team and I really try to do is when people talk about PTSD, we talk about PTS, post-traumatic stress, because as one of my closest friends in the brains who's in my in first platoon said to me, you know what Seth, it would be a disorder if you weren't affected by what we saw. It's a natural human reaction to have some anxiety coming out of a super stressful situation. And we've got to normalize that for Americans.
2: Um, okay, so this re- the, the rehab, you, speaking about going to rehab, right? Rehab, relapse, rehab, relapse. This is a common pattern. It's part of this 28-day thing that you know, I could spend hours talking about how wrong it is, um, from a from a non medical perspective as a family member, to just see your person go in, come out, fail, go back in, come out, fail, and then feel like a failure, and then that is self defeating. Mm-hmm. So I know you talk at Eleanor Health a lot about long term recovery, long term recovery, and a whole person approach, and you're leveraging data to do this long term recovery. So. I feel like this is a completely different way to look at the rehab model. And people think like, oh, I can't afford it or I can't afford to leave my life for, I can't leave my life for 30 days. How am I gonna leave my life for 90 days or 60 days? You know? So how do you encourage people to believe in long-term care? What, can you talk a little bit about that and how you're using that?
1: So that, I mean, that's, that's I would say, the thing, the thing that keeps me up at night because when people think of a recovery, they think of, of you know, the, the, the rehab industry has done a really good job of making people think that what they do is what you need to do if you have um, an addiction that you need to treat. And our system has done nothing but support that through our payment models. So, um, you know, in, in healthcare, you're, you're paid for the number of sort of services that you provide, not the outcomes that, that you get. And so it actually benefits to co- the, the, the 28-day rehabs, to have people go in and out and in and out and in and out, um, and so a long a long-term recovery that ends in one or five years. So you know, a, a, a several years at Eleanor is the same as a, a month of of treatment in terms in terms of cost um, because it's in an outpatient setting. It's not mm. in a, at a luxury resort. Um, it's in the community where you're facing your stressors every day and you're dealing you're learning how to deal with those stressors. Um, you know, I, I always try to compare it to um, to make it real for folks. You know, when you, when you go on a vacation, do you eat the same way? Do you work out the same way? No, I mean, go out every night, have ice cream, and don't really work out, and, you go, and then you go back to your normal life, and you go back to work, and you're not laying on the beach, and the same sort of patterns are there. You can't break your patterns when you go on vacation, which is essentially what, what a resort rehab is. Uh, and so, you know, I think, I think the, the world is shifting to try to learn about evidence long-term recovery, but first comes, there are, so, there are so many sort of educational barriers, you know? There are people who are telling their story, there are policymakers that are changing the way, you know, we think about and pay for addiction, and so all those things, I think, need to occur for us to continue to make progress.
0: I think when I talk to people who are getting, are new to recovery, they talk about how they can't spend 30 days, even 30 days away from their job, or their families, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm being completely honest with you, if you don't do this, you're gonna lose that anyway. They, they just can't see it. We have blinders on because everybody else can see what a dumpster fire it's become. But we don't believe that, you know, it's when there's surrender and acceptance finally. And I was finally at that point, I went to the, I went to the Malibu Rehab. I stayed 90 days, I was three years sober when I went. Um, and I would watch guys walk out after 28 days, and I'm like, I'm just going to leave you this with this advice as you leave right now, all right? I am three years sober. I'm going to stay here for 90 days because I know what this is. And I have heard your whole process and your whole story while you've been here. I just want you to leave with that. And most likely, I was there for 90 days, and the people that left in 30, some of them were back by the time I was heading into... Day 70. So it, it's all about surrender and acceptance, and it doesn't matter where you go at that point. If you're willing, if you're willing to change, and want to change, you can go to the Salvation Army, or you can go anywhere. But um, it's ultimately then your choice to uh,
3: to make that shift and that change. Yeah, you know, Ron, I, st- I still see the therapist too, and I feel like I've been very successful in managing my post-traumatic stress. I don't have the nightmares and things like that that I used to. I don't feel. Withdrawn from my work, like I sometimes did in grad school, I feel totally engaged. But it's—I just know it's a healthy pro- process, a healthy um, practice to keep checking in with someone. And um, and so I, you know, have no intention of stopping that.
0: For me, it's the accountability piece, right? Yeah. You know, as an addict, I'll I'll lie and manipulate. It's what I've done my whole life. I need somebody who's been with me. I've seen the same therapist now for five years, and she will. She absolutely knows the signs of what my addict behavior, or or where I'm going off the rails, and she'll hold me accountable for that. That's huge for me, because for the longest time, I was was the golden goose for family members, for people like that, that they didn't want to take the train off the tracks, because it was special, and they got something out of it. You know, it's neat to find a therapist who doesn't care that you're showing up every week and collecting that, her paycheck through that process, and not just kind of, feeding you, enabling behavior, but actually saying, hey, that's, that's old behavior, Ryan. Can we take a look at that? That's been huge for me in the transformation because I still screw up all the time. Just because I'm standing up here, sitting more or less, um, telling you guys the story doesn't mean I have this thing figured out. I mean, I have a two and a half year old, so I'm screwing up all the time right now for the first time having a child. And, um, and that's important to be able to, to talk about it and try to have the tools to make sure I can navigate this this situation.
2: Um, let's see. Okay, let's talk about let's talk about blame for a second. Fun thing. Um, we all know that American pharmaceutical companies all over the country are currently enmeshed in lawsuits for billions and billions and billions of dollars. And I think it's very human to want to place blame somewhere. Uh, you know, you shifting from talking about accountability of self to want to say it's that person's fault. And it's very convenient that the Sacklers, you know, with all these lawsuits coming out, it seems that there, there is nefarious intent with what they did, right? So can we sort of talk about how helpful is it to Try, want to and then try to say this is your fault. Where does that leave us? You know, with all of these lawsuits and everything going on with that.
1: I think, I think there's, there's, a, there's a place for blame in that the pharmaceutical industry has, has done things to, to, to push substances as medication that, that and indicate that they're not addictive. Um, but I think, I think in broadly speaking, it you know it sort of undermines the disease of addiction. It undermines. Um, that addiction is a you know it 's a brain disease um, by sort of blaming it on the, the substance in and of itself so when a person is, is dealing with addiction not, it 's not just the physical addiction yes, people are physically addicted, and when you come off of of opioids or any other addictive substance, you have a physical reaction to that, but you can be completely detoxed, completely not physically addicted and see a syringe and still have that same Reaction that same craving even without that physical addiction and that can happen with any substance. It doesn't have to happen with with opioids or because um, the Sackler family prescribed um, or pushed pushed the the prescription of of opioids. And this is this is just part of the human condition. And you know if if it wasn't the Sacklers, if it wasn't opioids, it would be it would be meth. It would be another chemical. It's been part of our history since the beginning of time. And so you know I. I I, in some ways, worry about the pointing of fingers. I'll, I'll ask, I'll ask Seth from a yeah. policy perspective what he, what he feels, since I know that there is there is some, you know, remunerations yeah, that, that yeah. are trying to be. Look, there are some bad people out there. There are some bad governments out there.
3: I mean, the Sacklers should be sacked. Uh, China is providing 90% of the fentanyl in the United States right now. I actually have a, a bill that I passed into law to sanction the producers of Chinese fentanyl. This is necessary because the US and China actually had an agreement in 2014 to stop shipments of fentanyl from China to the US. In the next year, the United States Customs Service stopped 1,207 shipments of Chinese fentanyl to the US. Chinese customs stopped four. So the point is the Chinese aren't even trying. I think China knows that this stuff is bad for us and they're in global competition with America so they're happy to see it go. To, uh, to the to United States. So we gotta be more aggressive in confronting China on fentanyl. But the way I look at it is, while it's important to do that, and while people like me in Washington will be doing that, if you're someone who's suffering from one of these issues, you've gotta take personal responsibility if you're ever gonna get better.
1: I think, I think it's, it's, it is very hard to take personal responsibility when it's been something that's prescribed by a doctor. You know, I think that's, that's where sort of the, the blame comes in. Yeah. You know, a significant portion of patients who, who we see are Medicare patients. And they've been prescribed something by their doctor and they continue to take it and have a significant dependence on that and don't understand the long-term implications of it. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest things that, that, that we see is, is people calling and just trying to understand, is what I'm doing harmful to me? Is it actually addiction? Yeah. And so I think the you know the, the question that um, Stephanie asked you earlier, sort of how do you know how do you get to the point where you realize for yourself? Is it when you're stealing you know pills from, from family members? Is it when you go from pills to, to black market drugs? Um, you know I think I think you know raise, raising awareness, and I think as as an athlete you know you're you're almost t- told to be invincible. You know we have a society that 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 puts you up on a pedestal. That makes it really easy to access medications, and then almost encourages you to continue to use them because because your performance is is more important than your health.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think when you're in pain physically, it did its job, right? When you're in acute acute physical pain, it does its job and it takes away that. So I think the immediacy of of when you're using more than you're prescribed, I think, might be the the telling point, right, when you're supposed to take one or two every, you know, six to eight hours, and instead you're taking, you know, three or four, four or five, I mean, that may be the first symptom of that. Around the accountability piece, right, you know, I blamed everybody. I blamed the doctors, I blamed the NFL, I blamed the media, my family, I blamed everybody, and I just, I never, I just never broke it down and made it as simple as about what was my part in all of this, and I try to make things as simple as possible now because that's the way I function. I'm kind of, you know, I'm the, the jock. So I try to make it as simple as I can. And sometimes I just kind of say life isn't fair. It's how I deal with it that matters. And if I deal with it in a positive and healthy way, I've seen how that's translated in my life. You know, if I do the next right thing. Long ago, if, if the doctor prescribed that and uh, I, would, I started taking a little bit more than I should, and I went right to him and said, hey doc, I am, I'm taking more than I should. Um, you know, What's this about? I mean, that never even crossed my mind, right? I was in control. There's an accountability part of all of this, and um, I think for anything, somebody should be held accountable for what they did, like the pharmaceutical companies are in my spot, like the NFL possibly, if they knew ahead of time that the concussions were actually occurring, but we also knew what we were doing. We're playing a very violent sport. We get knocked around. Our head bangs on the ground. That's that's accountability. I knew what I was getting into. Uh, if you did know something and didn't, know, didn't inform us, then that's on you. I don't expect anything because of that, uh, but there should be some consequences to your actions, period, just like they were mine.
3: You, you know, I, I described earlier how it's been an amazing experience to have shared my story and now have people coming up all, all around the country and sharing theirs, and also people really close to me, close friends, people who I work with who I had no idea were struggling with mental health issues or just dealing with them, and they've opened up because I shared my story. But it's important for me to say, too, that there were a lot of Marines that I knew, many of them, most of them younger than me who found the courage to share their story before I shared mine. And there's some amazing stories around that. One of the best Marines I served with um, was obviously struggling uh, with stuff. And um, the only way that he got care was because his grandfather, who was a Vietnam veteran, took him to the VA one day, because he said, "Um, I need you to drive me to an appointment. He basically tricked him into going to the VA. And when his grandfather, got there he said no, no no they're not seeing me they're seeing you because you need to get help and the amazing part of that story is that after this friend of mine started going to the va and getting therapy and started getting better and his grandfather saw this his grandfather for the first time in his life as a vietnam veteran asked for help himself so there are people out there who are recognizing yes this, is, this takes work and it's hard to admit that, that, that you need help. It was hard for me and the more people I think that can set that example, that's why it's so powerful that athletes like yourself are setting this example, the more people out there who are struggling in silence will come out and get help themselves. I can't tell you
0: around the, the analytics side of it, okay? We were yeah. sitting backstage there and Twitter has become an unbelievable tool for positive change if you're willing to go into it that way. Yesterday I hosted NFL Live and I snapped a picture and told my story essentially. Second pick in the NFL draft, bombed, crashed, went to prison, chose to get up, and now I'm working for the Disney Corporation and ESPN and I hosted NFL Live for the first time yesterday. And the response to your point, if you're just willing, it doesn't cost me anything to be transparent, and I always thought that was the hardest part, that for me to tell you that something was going on with me was weakness. It does not cost me anything to just throw my stuff out there for everybody to see, because I know that there's going to be somebody who's going through the exact same thing that I was, and they'll find some hope in that, that they can do whatever they want. Because if I can do this, if I can get to the place where I'm at right now and where I was at just six years ago, which was in a prison cell, than, than anybody can, and it's because of sharing your story. Um, I work with a lot of veterans, and that's exactly the truth, to find new purpose and understanding around, because when we take that uniform off, we don't feel like we'll ever do anything as important again. Right, right, It's very true.
1: I think, I think your, your story you told about um, the, the veteran and, and his his grandfather, I think, you know, exposing one and sort of Having, having them come to terms with it um, is one of the things that, you know, we're using data and analytics to do. You know, the, the data tells us who is who, struggling, whether they've been diagnosed or not. It's, you know, it's, it's obvious, obvious from the data that we have. And so, you know, there are 20 million people in this country who are diagnosed with a substance use disorder. Um, there's an 80 percent treatment gap, meaning that 20 percent of those people are, are seeking treatment. So what are the other 80 percent doing? Right. We know that they're out there. And so, one of the things that we do is, is we we have analytics that, that both you know show those who have been diagnosed, but also those who are showing, you know, so signs that they're abusing, you know, doctor shopping, you know, going in and out of the emergency room with um, yeah. di- diagnoses that aren't substance use disorder, but obviously you know they stubbed their toe and they got more more opioids. it's it
3: it's great. I mean, it's great that other people have felt empowered to share their stories because we've shared ours. It also was. Is- great for us to know, like, whoa, there are a lot of other people out here who are dealing with this, too. Well, it champions, that other 80%. Right, yeah, it right?
0: champions us. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, early on when I spoke about this, I mean, I was emotionally drained after those speeches. Like, you're regurgitating things that, you know, psychologically affected you for years. So it, it's hard to do it. But to get that feedback back and know that people are are willing to accept help and change and things like that, I mean, that that keeps you going in that direction. You, you wouldn't, and the analytics part of it is, you wouldn't keep doing something if there was no positive reinforcement from it, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I think uh, we continue to do that.
2: So uh, we have some great questions from the audience that I wanna get to. Um, so this is an interesting one, talking about reaping benefits from our behaviors, right? People think like, oh, addictions, they're so toxic. Well, people don't do drugs because it makes them feel terrible. They do drugs because it helps, right? It provides something, something positive. So let's shift from opioids. Is every addiction unhealthy, somebody asked. Examples, addiction to competition, addiction to working out, addiction to work. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
1: It's funny. Daryl just walked out, but I had a conversation with him, him the other night about, about addiction where, you know, he's, he's, he has a passion for analytics and basketball, and that, that passion could be called an addiction like many of us, and, and that addiction has propelled us to success and to prominence, and we've gotten accolades for it, whereby somebody else who their addiction is you know, a, a substance. They're marginalized by society. Their you know their relationships are are destroyed. I'm not sure about relationships on those with other addictions, but you know, I think is is one worse than the other. One you're getting positive reinforcement. One you're you're you know getting a lot of negative consequences from it. And so a lot of it does come down to sort of the the you know positive addiction. You know, I know you've you've talked about this as well. As, Indeed. Um, uh, you were you were psychoanalyzed on your. I was psychoanalyzed.
2: If anyone's ever uh, familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate, he is a trauma expert, world renowned. I brought him on my show, and I said. Um, Okay, listen, I know you say that everyone who's addicted is the product of trauma, but we had a perfect childhood and I'm not addicted and my brother was, so you're wrong, basically. That's the summary. And then he spent 45 minutes telling me (laughs) how wrong I am about my childhood and also that I do have an addiction. It just happens to be a positive one that is societally accepted, um, but still has a negative impact on my family. If I'm working (laughs) obsessively and I'm ignoring my six-year-old, she now has a sign on her door that says, no technology allowed in my room, you know? And I'm like, oh no! You know, so, so my positive addiction impacts her negatively. And I think that's an interesting thing to sort of think about. It might not be opioids, but what I'm doing to fulfill whatever I need to do is having an impact on my loved ones.
1: And the, and the brain scans for you versus the brain scans of, of somebody who is, is craving, it's a saint, right. they look the same. And so, you know, it's, a, it's a more of a philosophical question. That. Indeed. Yeah, you're not doing any policy around
3: that. Well, I mean, I just want to make sure we get to other questions, I mean, I, but I think it's just real. I, mean, yeah. I remember a conversation with someone in the front seat of my car saying, Seth, why are you going 80 miles an hour down Starro Drive? And I was like, well, I missed the adrenaline. That wasn't a good, right. <laughs> wasn't a good decision at that moment. Now, now, if you see me on Storrow Drive, I have a 16 month old daughter, so I'm like five miles an hour below the speed limit. But, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's real. It feels real.
2: good, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so this is an interesting question. Do we see the same problems existing internationally? So France, Germany, UK, or is this more of a US problem?
3: It's absolutely international, and the difference is that a lot of other countries are much better at dealing with mental health. Mm. Portugal, for one. Yep.
1: Yeah, they're, well, they're better at dealing met, with mental health, and they don't have a lot of the same stigmas, so, you know, we call it harm harm reduction, right? So it's accepting people as they are, as they come into treatment, other countries are Huge proponents of, of harm reduction. Well, Port- we are-
3: Portugal has supervised injection sites. Exactly. Something that we should have here in Massachusetts, but most other people in my seat, including the governor, are against it. And yeah. that's something that we need to change because it's working in Portugal.
2: Can you can you explain for those who don't know? Because I know there's a lot of misunderstanding around supervised injection sites. Can someone give us a quick and dirty about what those are?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a safe it's a safe place for people who are addicted who aren't willing to get the help that they need at the time to... So I use my mother in a lot of my talks just because I'm an addict and she assumes that everybody will behave like her son. Like when we talked about decriminalization or legalization and things like that, she says everybody will be outside of Walgreens around the corner waiting to get in and get some Vicodin. And I tell her, mom, not everybody's like your son, okay? we're not, the war on drugs isn't, isn't working. That, that hasn't worked. It's only made it worse. You start removing things that actually play into the process. Uh, You remove non-violent drug offenders from, from prisons and
3: the
0: Mm -hmm. for-profit prison systems breaks down. There's the DEA, you know, doesn't necessarily have to exist in the same form. You know, you have black market drugs coming into the country, those are no longer things, because if you're an opiate addict, like I am, and I want to get my fix, I'm going to get it regardless. The difference is, I don't know what the hell's going to be in it, most likely on the street, where, if you go to a drugstore, if you go to a safe injection site, you know it's a clean needle, you're not going to be dying from it. The whole conversation around whether or not first responders should have Narcan available to them? They should. Uh, Everybody should. Because I tell you right now, and I I use this as an example, if I had overdosed, and and many people who are opposed to this think that you're just incentivizing drug addicts to overdose because they know they're gonna be saved. And I'm like, I'm telling you right now, we're trying to numb ourselves completely. And what's the furthest and farthest
3: reach we could go to numb ourselves, and that's to no longer be here? Yeah, I have Narcan in the bag I take everywhere I go. And Thank you. the reality of these, I mean, and there are plenty of studies that prove this, the reality of these safe injection sites is that they make communities safer. Yep. Because fewer people die, and more people who go to these sites actually get exposed to treatment options and take advantage of them.
2: And what, and what we need to know is, people are going to use. They, they're yeah. going to do it in the Starbucks bathroom, or they're going to do it at the safe injection site. They're going to do it on the playground, or there.
1: And that's so. So that's one part of harm reduction is the safe injection sites. But the other is that in you know in the recovery and and addiction community, it's typically been abstinence only. And so you know if you're if you're a heroin addict, um, you have to come in and say, I want to give up everything. Well, that's that's really hard. And and. That we don't we don't treat anyone like that in the rest of healthcare. We don't sort of fire patients because their you know A1C level for a diabetic you know went off. You don't kick them out and say we will never giving you insulin again. Um, and so you know it, harm reduction also means sort of accepting people who they are. You know we had a we had a patient who came in who was a heroin addict and wanted to get off heroin. Um, but also wanted to have a pot brownie and a beer on the weekend with, with his friends. And every other treatment facility would have, would have fired him and said, you're absolutely not ready for treatment. He absolutely was ready for treatment, and he's been off heroin, and now he's off, off of um, marijuana as well. He's still having a beer on the weekend with friends, but guess what? He's been in, incredibly improved his, his health care, and he's been you know, living a, a much more fulfilling life.
2: Okay, we have a lot of questions. And I'm looking at this clock and it's just ticking away. Uh, So I'm going to I'm going to do one more and it sort of uh, spins off of what you just said. So there are all of these experimental uh, treatments now, and some of them involve psychedelics. So what are your thoughts on the emerging evidence showing benefits of treating PTSD? Do we say D or just PTS? Yes,
3: PTS. PTS.
2: PTS yes. Thank you. I learned something I, today. Me too. Me That's too. great. Dropping the D. So dropping the D. Uh, benefits of treating PTS. That could mean another thing. We're just another hashtag. Another Run. panel. Another panel for another time. Drop the D. Um, so wow. Uh, what are your thoughts on the emerging evidence showing benefits of treating PTS with psychedelics?
3: I mean, I know this is not a very popular position in politics right now, but I actually believe in facts. And the fact of the matter is that we should look at the data here. This is an (laughs) analytics conference, and if the data supports this, then then we should then we should explore it. So I'm I'm all I'm all for it.
0: I'm not a doctor. This is my experience. I don't know how other things affect other people chemically. Guess guess how we figure that out through science. Yeah, you know. And I'm not I'm not smart enough to be informed to to make those decisions. I know what works for me because of the care from my healthcare professionals and how we've gone about it and i take their advice because i don't make the proper choices right my best thinking took me to a prison cell so i don't make the proper choices i need to understand this and that's where the data and the analysis comes into it and my doctors have put that in the right place for me
3: i have some bills out there just to allow the v a to study cannabis because so many veterans are using cannabis many because they don't want to get addicted to opioids and we don't even know what that that means it's something that we should study. Now, the political opponents of this are the abstinence-only people. Mm-hmm. Abstinence-only when it comes to drugs, when it comes to sex ed. We don't need to go down that pathway, but there are a lot of Americans out there, including many of my colleagues in Congress, who think that's the only approach. That's not what the data suggests.
1: I think, I think to Ryan's point, you know, different things work for different people, and so a very personalized ab- approach is what we, need. It's what we need for everything, right? A very sort of whole person approach you know for, for some people um, you know it's it's running essentially probably replacing one addiction with with another but that sort of gives a person meaning and purpose to to continue in in recovery and for others it might be psychedelics I, I don't know the I don't know the evidence behind that,
2: <laughs> I, like I, can't speak
1: to that. I cannot speak to the evidence <laughs> of psychedelics so. uh,
2: well we had many other questions unfortunately we are out of time so I just want to thank all of you for coming and all that you're doing to make the world better, it can feel like it's getting worse. But this stuff brings everybody hope. So, so thank you guys very, very much.
1: This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.